Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome back to another episode of the Muni Poly Matters podcast. Uh, I am Alan, and once again, I'm interviewing another uh, municipal politician. Uh, this one's going to be a little bit different. Uh, the uh, the person, the, the gentleman I'm interviewing here, uh, has a very interesting career, and uh, he he is in municipal politics, but he's also involved in another area, which uh, I will let him elaborate on. Uh, this is Councillor Brian White. He is a city councillor from the city of Sarnia, which is close to the Windsor-Detroit border, so in southwestern Ontario. And so uh, I'm very glad he is uh, here tonight. He is the actually so he's actually for first uh, sitting councillor running for re-election that I've interviewed in this series, and I'm very excited to have him on tonight. Um, councillor White, how are you? How are you this evening? I'm doing very well, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here to chat and obviously to get to know you a little bit better. And uh, yeah, happy to happy to talk about whatever whatever comes to mind, politics or other. <laughs> and uh, and uh, yeah, no, just wrapping up another busy day on the on the front. But uh, I think uh, you know I think that's what public service is all about. It's about just keep going until the end and make sure you find time to to unwind. Yeah. So just to uh, let everyone know, so so far in the series, I have interviewed mainly candidates who are running to be aspiring city councillors or uh, municipal councillors. So they've not served on uh, council before. Um, Councillor White is obviously in his, uh, is this your first term or you know, your second term? I am. Second. Second. So he's on his second term. So he's a veteran at this. So uh, you might be wondering why I'm interviewing him. So um, Councillor White, why did you let the good, my, my audience know uh, the other particular career choice you've, yeah, or the other thing you do uh, uh, on your living besides being a city councillor. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, sure. I'm a I'm a professional wrestler as well on the on the side. <laughs> That's my side gig, uh, which is great. It's a, it's a ton of fun, and uh, it's nice to know that uh, there are fellow wrestling uh, fans or aficionados out there who also enjoy politics. It's a rare breed. It's a rare breed. I've been to my share of indie wrestling shows, and mainly, no, nobody really like those two things do not mix as often. <laughs> and I try to uh, respect the people I hang out with when it comes to wrestling. I don't want to bother them in politics and vice versa. <laughs> but uh, let's let's talk a bit about you. Uh, uh, so, why don't you tell me a bit about yourself, like your early life? Like, like were you born and raised in Sarnia, like that sort that sort of thing? You know. Yeah, yeah, I was. I was born here uh, in in Sarnia, where where I, I currently live and serve. Uh, moved away like a lot of people my age uh, thought they were supposed to do. Um, but yeah, I, I grew up here, uh, stayed here till I was twenty one, and went away to college to Niagara College. Uh, grew up in uh, you know probably not the most uh, pleasant circumstances. There was a lot of addiction and violence in my home when I was really young. Um, so a little turmoil, uh, not a little, a lot of turmoil that I grew up with, uh, a lot of trauma, self-esteem issues, which led me into addiction, uh, at a very young age. And so when I went away to college, I kind of thought I'd found my escape, uh, not only from all of that stuff, but, uh, you know, from, you know, the, the place that I kind of held responsible for that. And I went away to Niagara College. Uh, I lived in St. Catharines uh, and, and attended Niagara's Welland campus. My uh, current, my wife, uh, who was my girlfriend at the time, was with me as well at the time. So we've been together forever. And, um, and I took broadcasting, radio, television, and film at Niagara College. And oh, very interesting. So <laughs> you, you took broadcasting. So did you have aspiring, like career aspirations to be in like, I guess media or, or I guess being being in like radio or entertainment at that, at that point in time. Yeah, when I went there, my goal was to be a much music VJ. Oh, <laughs> that was nice. it was a very specific thing. I was going to take over and be the next Steve Anthony. So I'm uh, showing my age maybe a little bit. Um, but uh, when I, so the first year, it was all uh, all of the subject areas: uh, broadcast management, radio, television, and film. Um, I won all of the radio awards and uh, really enjoyed my time in, in the television production as well. Um, uh, prior to that, I'd been volunteering at community television in Sarnia for two or three years to build my portfolio so that I could pick uh, which college 
uh, I wanted to go to as opposed to taking whatever, you know, I could get. Uh, so Niagara was my number one choice. Um, so I went in there with a lot of experience in television as well. And strangely, after the first year when it was time to specialize, I picked film. Uh, you know, it was a new avenue to focus on uh, telling stories and being behind the camera. And um, yeah, so not what I went there for. And it, I just fell in love with being able to tell stories, in particular documentary. And that was, you know, my my goal was to tell real life stories. They were stranger than fiction, more fascinating than anything I could make up on paper. And uh, and so, you know, I finished up uh, my third year with a project that was picked up by Bravo Canada screening at film festivals and uh, subsequently moved to Nova Scotia with this film that uh, was screening at the Atlantic Film Festival 10 days after I, I had actually made the commitment to move to Nova Scotia. So I kind of arrived, so to speak. That's how I felt anyways. And then, and then, uh, and then reality hit me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> careers don't just, careers don't just fall in your lap, even though you've yeah. accomplished a few things. Right. So then I had to start digging in and doing the hard work. Right. Uh, so the, so the film you uh, made, I guess for the, for the, I guess, what was that? What was the film about? That was about a musician from Sarnia named Mike Stevens, who at the time was very unique. He's a harmonica player and probably the best in the world. And while that, that might not sound like much to most people who don't know much about harmonica, but we're, if you heard him, you would understand what I what I mean. Look up Mike Stevens and, and see how he plays this thing. It's uh, it's it's beyond anything you could even imagine. Um, and one of the elements of his career was playing in Nashville and in, in these bluegrass states on a on a very consistent basis. So he was playing an, a non-traditional instrument in a bluegrass setting with people that had, you know, jet black hair and 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 rhinestones and all of the stuff that was very not Sarnia and uh, total fish out of water. And I actually had an opportunity to go right to the Grand Ole Opry with the camera in my hand, uh, which had never been done in 40 years prior uh, that I was allowed backstage with a camera running and I was on stage at the Opry and, and, and in other locations as well. And we just created this really fascinating story of, of basically about this, this person who's totally out of his element yet completely accepted and it was a fun, it was a fun piece, but what was cool about it was we built a relationship and, uh, that was right as the digital, uh, revolution was happening. I say that because suddenly filmmakers were shooting on digital media instead of film. We shot that film on 16 millimeter, which is very expensive, uh, and very impractical. Um, suddenly Mike's whole world changed, uh, and he was taking instruments to children in Northern Canada who were sniffing gas and, uh, he just kind of gave up his whole career. Somebody happened to catch some footage of him playing harmonica in the middle of the subarctic for kids who were all huffing gas out of plastic bags, which is the most shocking and painful image you could probably imagine, um, to see these kids. Uh, and he sent me the footage and asked me if there was something I could do with it. And then that just kind of, that next phase of my career took off. I said, we're making a film about this and we're going to try and help and change, you know, the reality for people in Northern Canada or in, in, in remote, uh, first nation communities. Wow. That's a, that's an incredible story. And it's just a very fascinating aspect i think of like canadian life that you know a lot of people don't know so we're really glad you were able to make a film about this and let people know at least hey this is an this is something that is in our country you know we have to acknowledge that these there are people who live in these sort of conditions so it's just that's just the reality right um so i guess uh my next question would be like i, I like what point did you so you said you moved to nova scotia for a bit and then so like when did you move back to Sarnia and I guess did you decide, was it just because like you wanted to move back home and just start to start like, you know, build your life, start building your life back here after like having lived in a number of other places and. 
Yeah, it was more of a of a necessity at the time. Uh-huh. We we'd moved um, we'd moved to a Cree community in northern Quebec. Uh, my wife and I. Uh, she took a teaching job there, uh, Wemindji, in northern Quebec, about halfway up on James Bay. So we lived in the subarctic there for a little while. Um, moved back to Nova Scotia, had our first child, and it was at that point that we really felt the distance uh, between home, you know, where our parents were, our family, the people that we loved uh, outside of our, our our circle of friends that we'd made while we were there and stuff. Um, but, you know, having a kid kind of changes your perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I'd worked with some pretty great people, and I believed that uh, well, another film about a, a guy named Kingsley Tweed, you can look him up too, um, who is largely responsible for desegregating Bermuda, um, so uh, working for about four years on that film as the editor, uh, I started to realize I could kind of work from anywhere if I if I chose to. Uh, things were really opening up with that digital reality. And I decided that, uh, my wife and I decided that it was better to be home. Um, and so we ended up back in Ontario. Uh, my wife's mom found herself sick uh, with a terminal illness. And so then we, we bumped, you know, one step further all the way back to Sarnia. Like we weren't going to come back to Sarnia, but when that happened, when she fell ill, uh, we just realized we needed to be home and uh, to be with her in her final uh, months or however long it was going to be. And so that's honestly what brought us home. And at that point, uh, having gone through that, uh, my wife was her only child. It was, uh, and we had now had our second child as well. Um, who was only a year old when my mother-in-law passed, it was, uh, it was time to just stay somewhere. We were tired, you know, to be honest with you. So uh, I love my city, obviously. Uh, I wouldn't serve here and I wouldn't still be here, uh, but uh, we, we didn't choose to come back. Uh, it, life happened and we ended up here. And it's, it's a, uh, I'm very grateful for all of those experiences uh, the gentleman that I was making the film about um, uh, Kingsley Tweed with uh, also passed away from the same disease, uh, both leukemia. Uh, so we we had suffered a lot of loss in a short period of time. And, you know, we just needed to be rooted somewhere. And one of the things that uh, kept me going was having met some of these wonderful people who were changing the world, literally. Um, was this idea that if I'm going to be here, it's got to be for a reason. And um, it wasn't short, it wasn't too long after my mother-in-law passed away that I I actually got sober um, and decided to live that second part of my life in sobriety, uh, being of service and trying to help people. Okay. Okay. Thanks for sharing that. So uh, I guess let's get to uh, some more. I guess the the the, more, the main part of your story is uh, I guess my like I guess the question I would start with, and then we can move on to discuss which part is. So what came first? Was it the political stuff or is it the wrestling? <laughs> politics, yeah, 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 politics. <laughs> politics. Okay, okay. So just to give a it, little, yeah. So just give a little background for people. So Sarnia is about 72,000 residents mm-hmm. right now. Uh, as I mentioned, it's uh, near the Windsor border. Uh, I'm look, so uh, how did you get involved with like local government? Because uh, you, 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 obviously you mentioned you're a very well-traveled person. You've had like a number of life experiences, like mm-hmm. ups and downs. So was, uh, at what point did you think like municipal politics or being part of or being involved with city government, like what, 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 what triggered you to get involved with that um, particular area? Well, I, I think I was sitting about four months of sobriety at the time when I first ran, and it was one of those, uh, not to be too cliche, but I, I was going through a, a bit of a catharsis, you know, for real, trying to redefine who I am and, and what my purpose is having gone through all of these experiences and how I could somehow encapsulate all of the knowledge that I'd picked up from all of these amazing people I've been privileged to work with over the years and really just this need to do something. So in some ways it was very selfish uh, because, you know, newly sober, I needed something. I needed something to focus on. And I really, you know, besides being a dad, I mean, I was relearning how to be a dad. I was relearning how to be a husband and, and, and a human being. Um, but I also wanted to feel uh, a bit 
useful, a bit more useful in my, in my position in the city. Uh, once my eyes were cleared, I recognized that not a lot has changed in the city since I had left it. And I actually felt pretty bad for wanting to leave the way that I did. I mean, I wanted to get out of here when I left and, and never come back. And now that I was back, I wanted to rectify the reason that I had those feelings. And part of that was to try and help make change for the things that I could see were, were in my opinion, wrong or stagnant. Um, I'd had the privilege of working and seeing, working with great people and seeing how differently things could be done. And what I found was that here in Sarnia, that things had just kind of hit this wall where every, you know, election cycle or whatever, uh, every few years, questions would arise. And then the answer was, well, we'll just leave it for now. We'll just allow things to just be the way they always were. And so I found that things were pretty much exactly the way I had left them minus, you know, or with the addition of some wear and tear on, on people, on resources and infrastructure. And I thought there's just a better way to do things. And the people that I could see serving at the time didn't reflect the realities that I had lived. So they weren't representative of my experiences my current reality, there were no parents of small kids uh, serving on council. Uh, quite frankly, it was uh, an old white, mostly white uh, man's club, retired oil workers, right? Like uh, we were a petrochemical town and that's surely the basis of our economy and our history, however, it is far from the future and it doesn't reflect the reality that a lot of people are living in. I was living in precarious employment. The, the folks that had a pension and sitting on council making decision had no idea the kind of reality that I had to face every day when I was making financial decisions, not knowing if I was going to have a steady job or those types of things. So yeah, it sounds a bit cliche, but it was, there was a lot going on at the time and I just decided that I could complain about it or I could just put my name forward. Okay. Mm, thanks. Yeah, here's where I uh, geek out a little bit because uh, I see that you were elected. Um, I hope you don't mind. I saw I was just looking up some of your biography here. So you were first elected to the city council of uh, Sarnia in 2014 as a city councilor, right. and then you served one term. And then in 2018, you ran for city and county councilor. So so you sit on both the city of Sarnia council as well as Lambton County Council. That's right. That yeah. Okay. And so uh, so most of the people I've been interviewing, they run in specific wards or districts within their municipality. So Sarnia doesn't have that. So they so Sarnia basically for so there are four county councilor positions and four city councilor positions. So uh, I guess citizens have to vote, I guess rank them the I guess the whoever the first four choices are based on like one, two, three, four, five, and then whoever gets the most top four vote getters, I guess the best way to describe it, yeah. uh, would become the uh, members of the council. So it looks like in 2018, you became the person with the third largest number of votes. Um, I'm just curious, like campaign, it's one thing to campaign for council seat in a specific neighborhood or area, right? But you have to campaign across the entire city. So you basically almost have to run almost like a pseudo mayoral campaign almost. I'm just wondering, what was the experience like with that? Because you have to go to every part of Sarnia to ask yeah. people for your vote. And I'm just, it's just, I'm just sort of wondering because I do a lot of political uh, volunteering myself. I kind of know what the pitch is like at the door. So it's just curious to know what the pitch is like for you because you're like saying, yeah, please vote for me. And it's not like you have to bash the other person because they're like, oh, I hope I'm one of your top four choices. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, fourth place is a win, right? And, and, and it, it is quite fascinating. So yeah, you're right. We have these two separate categories. And uh, you're either only on city or you're on city and county and you get the dual job, which, you know, now I've done one term of each. Um, and, um, and, and you're exactly right. It's, it's a lot of work. The campaigning, I enjoy campaigning, so it works out well for me. I'm, I'm a bit of a campaign geek as well. I, I just think it's, it's so much fun to knock on doors. It's, it's very fun to go around and meet people and to hear different perspectives. Um, so, uh, early on in 2010, when I first ran, I really focused on a particular area of the city. Uh, I was a complete unknown and, and I thought, well, you know, in a fluke, uh, in a Bob Ray moment or something, I might get in, but 
Um, at that point, you know, I really was focusing on the area of town where I grew up and really thought that I could be more relatable there. And, and quite frankly, given the socioeconomic realities of that particular area of town, I had to probably spend most of my time trying to convince people just to vote as opposed to why they should vote for me in, in particular. Um, or include me in their top two or top three because you don't have to vote for four you can vote for one or you can vote for three or whatever you want right it depends on how you choose to fill your ballot but um i uh i i, I learned a lot in that campaign and and i was able to out of that experience get involved in a lot more community uh, uh organizations people were basically recruiting me right after that campaign because they'd heard me speak at debates um, so I was joining boards and involved in different community organizations. I got uh, recruited to run federally and then provincially. So I'd actually had a lot of experience by the time I won in 2014 and being on doorsteps. So by the time 2014 came, uh, I was fairly well known across the whole city. So I, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Uh, and at that point, yeah, I kind of targeted some neighborhoods um, or certain quadrants of the city, but uh, mostly I, I tried to I tried to just kind of spread it out a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit around, uh, just to make sure that every area of the city felt they understood I was there and trying to listen and understand and you know really get a feel for what's going on because. I mean, Sarnia is geographically fairly large, despite the population. So there are some pretty significant differences from one end of the city to the other. And the reality that people live uh, is is quite contrasted. Yeah, I, I, I can see uh, see what you mean. It is a very uh, sparse, like very wide geography in terms of uh, even though it's only 70,000 people, and uh, your leadership, like you mentioned before, is a very, uh, you know, very, I guess, insular or um, club sort of thing. I mean, Mike Bradley's been your mayor since 1988. Mm -hmm. I remember watching Bowling for Columbine, and that's where I first heard of Mike right. Bradley because he was in that movie. <laughs> but, like, but yeah, um, so let's talk about some issues uh, that are the most important, uh, I guess, in Sarnia, but maybe probably across uh municipalities across Ontario because like I think in the news lately it's a uh, affordable housing affordable housing housing in general is always like a big topic um I'm, I think the general perception is that house prices in I guess the Windsor Sarnia area are probably more affordable than they would be in say where I'm from the greater Toronto area um but but is housing like a big uh, major issue uh, in Sarnia for you and your and your residents yeah it, it is it just yeah, it, it is. And just sorry, quick detour, your funny anecdote about Bowling for Columbine. Imagine me, I was sitting in the Halifax, uh, a theater at the Halifax Film Festival with Michael Moore. And suddenly my mayor came on the screen. And I was like, oh, my. oh, so that's so there's my worlds colliding again. Right. I was I, I actually had a very visceral reaction at that point. I was sitting with my director at the time and he's like, why are you getting so mad? I'm like, because he's still the mayor. <laughs> and he was up back then. Anyway, <laughs> I've told him that story, so it's okay. He's uh, I'm not saying anything he doesn't know. But um, yeah, housing here is uh, incredibly difficult. In fact, it's prior to uh, us getting together here for this conversation. I was at a community policing town hall, uh, and uh, and and our homeless numbers are are exponentially rising. Uh, right now, it's only in the last two years that you've actually visibly seen people living in tents, uh, living rough. Uh, we always had uh, a, a small number of people living rough, um, but now it's uh, it was hidden. You you wouldn't know it unless you were in a position like mine or or other community organizations. But now we're seeing uh, significant uh, numbers of homeless people, very visible um, groups of people living on plots of land in tents, um, sadly. Um, the housing prices here have actually skyrocketed to the point where um, they are comparable. Um, proportionately, we're, um, we've, I, I couldn't even give you the numbers. Our, some of our housing prices in the last six years have more than doubled, which is, which is substantial. So if, a house that was three hundred and fifty thousand dollars five six years ago is now going for seven, 
$750,000. That, that is a huge, huge increase. That just completely flipped our, um, our plans, you know, as, as a society uh, upside down because people that were five, six years ago envisioning having access to a reasonable place to live, uh, either as a new homeowner or even as a renter, uh, have to seriously rethink if they can even afford to live in Sarnia now. Um, so the options are few. There's been very limited development in this city over, I'd say, 30, 40 years. Um, aside from single family dwellings that have been built out into farmland, um, we have not kept up with apartment complexes. We have not kept up with townhouses and brownstones and row houses and all the things that make cities, you know, dense enough to afford the services. Um, and by virtue of that, the apartments that could have and should have been built 30 years ago that would now be affordable options, they just didn't exist. They don't exist. So anything that's being built now is being built at top prices as a, and, and rented out at top prices. So we're missing decades of development that could have prevented an issue here that we're now, it's, it's a crisis. Like it's a legitimate crisis. Is, uh, is Sarnia like revising your official plan? Are you like maybe going to be doing a zoning by bylaw amendments to allow more? I guess what the term is the missing middle or the miss, yeah, the, what they call nowadays, you know, like it doesn't necessarily have to be high rise condos in Sarnia, like, you know, maybe a few, but maybe there's other ones, maybe more low rise to sort of like try to meet those density targets in between, right? Like, is there uh, plans for your city uh, among your colleagues to try to, uh, alleviate that yeah we're in the middle of an official plan uh approval process right now um so it's it's sort of crossing over through the election period but uh we're waiting for the county to approve uh the official plan that we've just passed as a city council two months ago um part of that is inclusion inclusion of um and and developing this plan too towards uh more uh, accessory buildings so we had actually previously passed some zoning that allows, um, uh, but as of right, second units uh, on in, in your in your home. So if you wanted to turn your bedroom into a one of your bedrooms into a legal apartment, or your basement, or something. <coughs> excuse me, that is as of right uh, now allowed in most of the city. Uh, and now we're working towards more uh, accessory dwelling units, so converting the garages or allowing a cottage type of uh, a build in the backyard or a shipping container or something to be converted. Um, so that is definitely uh, in the works. Um, uh, the, the other thing that we're doing now very actively, it's one of the things that uh, I've been involved with um, since I brought forward a motion. So one of our particular neighborhoods, it's called Mitten Village, um, had economically deteriorated significantly since the time that I lived there when I was younger. Um, and so it became one of the areas of focus for me. And uh, City Council six years ago passed a motion that I brought forward to create a, a community development committee for that specific area of town. And with us focusing municipal resources and, a, and vo having volunteers on the committee from the neighborhood and beyond, um, we've been able to attract developers now who are repurposing a lot of the buildings that are there. We have community improvement plans to help with that as well, but we've done some rezoning. But part of that revisioning process is really just creating that welcoming environment. So projecting outward to the development community that doesn't exist already in Sarnia, quite frankly, attracting people from the GTA, from Vaughn, from wherever they, they might be traditionally, you know, spending their money and making money uh, to come and have a look uh, and it's starting to pay off. So now we're starting to see the conversion of some spaces, some properties uh, or lots uh, to either from commercial or institutional to residential. And we're now starting to see some of that infill and densification, but it's been a lot of work, but it's nice to know that doing the work actually is starting to pay off. I just wish we hadn't have had to wait this long to do it because again, we're, we're in a crisis. It would have been nice if we were 10 years 
Sony is not the only place that's probably thinking like of course. that. <laughs> of course. So yeah, I guess another interesting thing for me, and I know noted that because you shared you're you're in proximity of an international border, mm-hmm. so just wondering like you know there's billions of dollars of trade that go back and forth between Canada and the United States, like. How does being next to an international border affect, I guess, local policy making? Are there like issues, particular in your city, that are sort of related to being next to, you know, our largest trading partner? Well, yeah, yes, but not to the extent that you would you would expect. You would think it would be at the municipal level a little bit more connected, but in reality, most of those issues are federal. Yeah, um, some are provincial. Um, even our trade route, you know, the highway, we, we have no say over. I mean, really, we get frustrated if trucks are backed up on the highway and they take an off ramp, you know, three exits early and drive through our city because now we're paying for the wear and tear on the road. So, I mean, from that perspective, we get a little frustrated, but we do have things that we've uh, as a municipality uh, have had to consider and make investments in. One of them is what's called the oversized load corridor. Um, and it, it's, you know, quite frankly, what that means is we have a, an industry um, and as a result of having the petrochemical industry, so very large vessels, very large, you know, pipes, very large, you know, manufacturing facilities to create those components that are required in the petrochemical industry. So those auxiliary um, businesses can create components for other places as well. So just to answer your question as a as a municipality, one of the things that we did do to try and encourage more of that trade to support more of our economy locally is to, using existing streets, of course, um, create a, a direct link from the outlying areas of the city, the petrochemical industry, um, to a specific dock. So we own this dock that was once a federal dock. Uh, because we are right on the water. We are on the border of Michigan. We do have a bridge that crosses, two bridges that cross over into Michigan. We do have an airport. So we have all kinds of access to transit um, for materials, but some of these items are so large, there's really only one way that they can get out, and that's on a ship. Um, So we have access to the ships. So what we did was we put money into basically burying all the services, so making sure that overhead power lines uh, are now underground so that every time one of these large units gets transported down municipal streets to a dock, they're not spending hundreds of thousands of dollars every single time to disconnect power lines, which is disruptive to all of the businesses, just to make sure that these things can pass uh, along on the street. Uh, so we kind of created this safe uh, corridor, uh, an efficient corridor that saves hundreds of thousands of dollars per delivery. So that's just one thing that we've had to consider. Um, but re- the reality is most of that stuff is beyond us. Uh, we ask for lots of help uh, in trying attract, to, to attract new uh, opportunities because, again, we see a lot of goods going through or by our city. We're trying to get some of those folks to stop. And it's, it is working. Um, it's definitely working. Um, we've created business parks to try and cre- uh, uh, attract, you know, again, accessory buildings so or accessory options. So, for example, uh, car manufacturing in Windsor in Detroit. Why aren't we building tires or wheels here? Why aren't we building components for, for vehicles and things like that? So we've tried to sweeten the deal for certain industries to try and locate here. Um, but and take advantage of that corridor. Uh, again, the, the bridge is right there and we see a lot of goods going by. So it's always part of our economic development plan to try and make sure that we can get some of that stuff to stop here or originate here uh, because we have such uh, easy access to the US market. Okay, fascinating. So let's get into a little bit of the fun stuff here. So um, the wrestling, so... <laughs> How did you? Uh, how did you? How did you uh, get in, interested in uh, professional wrestling? Uh, I've been a wrestling fan since I was a kid. Oh, I was. Yeah. Oh. I remember the run up to WrestleMania when it was just called WrestleMania. Like I remember Mr. T jumping over the barricade to try and save Hulk Hogan. So I mean, that was uh, and the anticipation that I thought my stepdad was going to buy me tickets for WrestleMania three since it was just in 
Yeah, the, yeah. Michigan. Yeah. But it was only about 11.30 that morning when we weren't getting in the car that I realized he wasn't surprising me with tickets that day, and I broke down and cried. So um, <laughs> I, uh, I about, I'd say, five, six years ago, um, you know, I have a, an older child with um, so just brief story i have an older child with disabilities um and it's been a, also as a parent uh, a very traumatic experience to have a kid who's attempted suicide multiple times and all that stuff and there's just been a lot going on with that and that's all you know based on diagnosis uh, a lot of stuff that's beyond our control um and so my son my youngest uh, has had to live with an older sibling and, and and experience a lot of that stuff as well since he was very you know since he was born so about five and a half years ago or so pro wrestling indie wrestling came to sarnia and i hadn't seen it in a long time here um and i just decided at that point you know i was going to take my son and see if he fell in love with wrestling because i was i was pumped to go long story short MVP was on the show, um, you know, who's currently an active WWE star. Uh, he was on the show right here in Sarnia, and he was dragging the villain through the crowd. And some small kid went up as he held the villain back and gave the kid gave uh, the villain a chop. This little kid did, and my son just looked up and went, "Oh hell yeah!" and just ran up. And so I quickly got out my phone and I took a picture of my son <laughs> chopping this guy while MVP was holding him back. And for me, that was like the most incredible moment ever. And then I took a picture with the champion in the ring and I was like, wow, I, I stepped in a wrestling ring. Like I've never, I, this is what ropes feel like. And this is what the, this is what a belt feels like this. So I was geeking out like massive. Right. And so I, I wrote the promoter after and said, Hey, that was an amazing show. I had the time of my life. And, uh, if there's anything I can do to help out, you know, I'd, I'd be happy to help promote because there was probably only about 150 people there. And I thought like with the production value that I just saw, there's no way they'll keep coming back for 150 people. Right. Um, so if there's any way I can help draw more people and by all means, I didn't know what that meant. I just said, let me know if I can help. Hey, post that picture of your kid. So I posted the picture and, and put something, you know, insulting to the guy that your kid was chopping. So I, insulted the wrestler boom like three days later there's a promo the wrestler cut a promo against me and my city and i was like oh wow that's oh he's just a wrestler you know you know i i just remember i i think i looked you up a few days ago before this interview I, you did this long four minute i guess promo at a i guess at a bread a, a restaurant when you were having great. breakfast wait what did you initially say that uh, on the photo about the guy though Oh, I, I said, great, uh, great show it was amazing to see all of the athletes and how talented they were, except for this one who got beat up by an 11 year old. <laughs> so, I believe that wouldn't elicit a response. <laughs> right. So then he cut a promo against my city and me and all that stuff. And, and so I made that video in, in response uh, to really just try and build it. And even the reporters here were just, they were so confused. They were tweeting like, just saw the most bizarre video from Counselor White. I don't even know what to say about it. I remember reading that and uh, and thinking, oh, I've done my job. Okay, that's good. And so we ended up in the ring, you know, to shake hands. Um, welcome to Sarnia officially. Let's let bygones be bygones. Go to shake hands. Of course, I get kicked in the gut and beat down. Oh. Um, and then, <clears throat> so I'm living my dream, right? I'm getting beat up in a wrestling ring. And... Uh, <laughs> and during his next his match he cheated to win and so i get called you know i get told you know why don't you grab the microphone after and say no no you don't get away with that in my city at the next show uh i'm gonna handcuff myself to your manager right so we deliver that for the next show the next show i handcuff myself to the manager of course i get beat up i get handcuffed to the top ropes i get beat up well then it leads to a tag team match at the next show it's like well if you want to be such a tough guy why don't you get in the ring so now i have to train now uh, i'm taking my son with me to london ontario now we're spending time in the car together just my son and i away from all of the noise away from my job in a city where nobody knows me uh and my son and i can just be father and son in the car 
uh, bonding. He goes to training with me. I go get my butt kicked in a ring. We drive back, you know, six or seven sessions later, and they were brutal. They were absolutely brutal. I have my match. Uh, I broke my wrist in the match. I finished the match anyway. And I thought, again, I just lived my, my fantasy. And if this is it, then, then that's fine. So I rehabbed. Um, another company came to town about nine months later, asked me to be in a battle royal. After I saw my face on the poster. <laughs> and, and so I, I said, okay, well, so I was in the battle royal. And then they said, we'd like to do a storyline with you, an ongoing series of matches with the guy that you eliminated at the end of the battle royal. Okay, so now I'm training for real. And that's kind of where it started from. It started, you know, with my son and I spending time together and, and bonding and healing. Um, to me now, continuing that, he's been with me every step of the way. Um, uh, even up until just refing a series of shows we just did in London um, this past week. Um, but, um, you know, it, it, my goals just evolved from there, right? I'm, I'm a... I'm a I'm a politician getting beat up by this big wrestler. And then I'm in this, and then I'm in this battle Royal. And then I'm a politician again, getting beat up by this wrestler, except then I, you know, sneak in an easy, uh, you know, uh, uh, I didn't see that one coming. I rolled him up for a win and oh, the politician won anyway, you know, and then we do these series of matches. And then after I continued to train and continue to train because now I have the bug, then my goal changed and it changed to, okay, now I'm, I'm bringing people, my people now want to watch me in the ring, my friends and family and people who think it's cool that I'm doing this in the city. So I now just want to have a wrestling match. I don't want to be the gimmick. I just, so that I bought gear and boots and I found an opponent who was willing to work with me just to have a match, not be like the politician who got beat up for 15 minutes and then snuck in a win, right? Mm. So now we had a legit wrestling match and then I met that goal. And then it just continued to evolve over the years from there. As the goals changed, I met them and wow. I just kept going. Sounds like a very natural evolution. Like you went from just sort of being a fan to like being involved in, in certain parts of the show to be to be like, you know, maybe not maybe not I don't know if you would have been the main event yet, but in an actual match, right? So what's your so what's your ring name? Uh, for, uh, I guess uh, like I think I I think I know what it is, but I would prefer you uh, describe it to our, my listeners. Yeah. Okay. So it was an evolution too, right? Because here in my city, I'm Brian White. That's what mm -hmm. just people know me as Counselor White. So at first it was like the counselor, and then when I was out of town, it was the counselor from Sarnia, Ontario. And people were like, okay, that's weird. Are you really a counselor? But like, yeah, didn't you read the CBC article? Okay, cool. All right. So whatever. <laughs> <laughs> excuse me to then I started getting booked more and more often so then I had to just kind of evolve that character and I just became the honorable one <laughs> I'm still the honorable one Brian White or I'm just the honorable one depending on where the promotion is uh, just like I'm a good guy or I'm a bad guy depending on where I am but um, yeah it evolved like I was wearing a blazer to the ring with a, with a white shirt underneath it ah. over top of my wrestling gear. Now I wear a leather jacket. So, I oh, mean, it's just now the honorable one is about sticking up for what's right or wrong, even if I'm a total jerk. Um, <laughs> okay. It's my version of what's right or wrong, I guess. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it just it kind of evolved over the years. And, uh, again, it depends on if I'm wrestling for Hammerlock, uh, pro wrestling, pure wrestling, then, uh, then I'm more of a a grumpy old wrestler. I'm, I'm the I'm the guy in the trunks trying to show these young kids, you know, the right way to do things and growling at the kids as I walk by. If I'm in uh, most other promotions, I'm wearing my funky, cool looking tights with uh, you know a smile on my face and the devil horns coming up. Ah, okay. High five and the kids on my way out and saying like, <clears throat> I'm was main eventing shows this last weekend and working in out of town again in places where they don't even know me and i grab the mic and i cut a promo and suddenly you know the kids are mobbing me at the end of my match and giving me high fives and stuff and it's just the most incredible experience where was uh where was the last show you had you said you were out of town uh yeah we just did a run in in london okay uh, over 10 days um i wrestled nine shows or nine 
over the span of 10 days, I wrestled nine of those days, two to three matches a piece. Most of those were in London at the Western Fair. And then I uh, last Saturday, I also wrestled in uh, Wyoming, Ontario, which is close to here. Mm -hmm. And then the same day, we went up to, for CCW, um, Classic Championship Wrestling, went up to Seaforth. Uh, and again, I yeah. wrestled for a few hundred people up there. Um, so I just did, you know, 20... 20 matches in the span of 10 days uh, ending yesterday was my first day off. So, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm wrestling again this weekend uh, in forest Ontario. And then I think I I'll be in St. Catharines the weekend after. Um, so normally not with that kind of consistency, you know, that was a, that was a run, but that was an experience. You know, if you grew up watching wrestling like me, you know that those guys were running those kinds of schedules. They were doing two shows a day, yeah. you know, 10 days in a row and then get a day off or whatever. So I've, I, that's my second time doing a run like that and getting to put my body through that just to try and understand. Again, a part of that is just me being a nerd because I just, I wanted to experience it. I, I, I wanted to know what that felt like. And, uh, it's not easy. <laughs> it's really and and if, if you don't mind me saying, because you know, you said you were like uh, showing your age, of it, <clears throat> showing your age a bit for some of your earlier cultural references. Like you, you, you start doing this uh, a bit later in life, right? Because the average age for people getting wrestling is between like twenty to thirty. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're. I'm pretty sure you're past forty. Yeah, but... I'm forty-seven. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> so I'm wrestling kids that could be my kids for sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, but none of them treat me any differently. In fact, is, you know, in my opinion, I'm keeping up with a lot of them. And in my years so far of training, I've seen a lot of the young kids come and go that couldn't hack it. So, like I said, the goals have just evolved over the years. Like, I just want to make it through this class. Some days was, I just want to make it through this class. We got to do two hours in ring and we already did you know, 125 push-ups, sit-ups, and crunches, plus all of the drills in the ring, plus at the end, somebody forgot a water bottle last night, so when we thought we were leaving, we have to do 500 more squats, you know, and I just go, okay, I just need to survive today. I just need to get through this. 500 squats. Yeah, after two and a half hours and no <laughs> air conditioning on a day that it was like 30 degrees, and we ran most of our drills on pavement that day because oh, we didn't even have the ring set up. That was when we had some new – it was sort of like a refresh of the of the, uh, of the the students, and so we were <laughs> – Yeah. <laughs> excuse me, burning out um, a lot of kids at that point. But, again, just trying to meet another goal and proving to myself. Like, I was not an athlete when I grew up. Not at all. Not mm. I was not – I didn't play sports other than baseball a couple of years, but I've never been an athlete. I've lived in chronic pain my whole life. And for me, this has just been this evolution of I'm, I'm actually reasonably pain-free even today, even though I just did that run because it's only taken me like two days now to kind of get over most of it because now I use that as an experience and an opportunity to learn Right, I got sober, I had to work on my mental health, and then now I didn't want to live in pain every day. So this was kind of like a catalyst for me to just learn my body and get better in my body. Like seven years ago, I had a herniated disc and I was using a cane. So I just got dropped on my back and on my head, you know, for 10 straight days. I don't even know how many times, right? Have you, have you tried any like alternative, like, um, therapies to like help alleviate the pain from, I guess, after a certain number of matches, like, do you do any like yoga or anything like that? Well, I, I teach DDP yoga. Oh, uh, okay. DDP yoga instructor as well. So I was down in Atlanta a couple months ago with Dallas page and meeting some other people down there. Butterbean was down there while I was down there. So I kind of found myself in that circle again through wrestling training that I discovered uh, DDP yoga. Um, and so I actually teach five classes a week. They're not, they're all online. So they're not exactly DDP yoga. We do power yoga and recovery classes and stuff. Um, but uh, as a DDP yoga instructor that, that led me into, yes, this sort of ability to heal and to recover. So yeah, but we were doing those shows in London and, I would do, you know, about 10 minutes 
half hour before every show, I'd go into the ring for about 10 minutes and, and whoever was already sitting in the bleachers and in the seats would watch me do yoga in the ring. Cause there was nowhere else for me to do it. Yeah. Um, in a building like that. Um, so I'd slide into the ring. I'd do yoga just to warm up my body and get loose and get ready to get dropped on my head or <laughs> whatever was going to happen. Um, and to just kind of loosen up from the last match. Um, and, and yeah, it's a huge part of my life. Yeah, I've heard a lot of uh, like very positive reviews about DDP yoga. Everybody from like Chris Jericho to AJ Styles have, have said they use it. And I think the big, biggest story with that, I think it was featured on like Ellen or something, was a, a military veteran named Arthur Borman. And I think he was um, disabled after his service. And then he did DDP yoga. And he went from not being able to walk to like running a, to running a, a, a sprint. And then he like lost a whole bunch of weight. And it was like, I was like, this is not the same person. This is amazing. Yeah. Wow. It's just like, yeah, I guess the training was just crazy. I think I should just let people who are watching and listening know that, you know, I think mean, there's a lot of misconception that like wrestling is fate, the F mm -hmm. word. But it's like, you know, like that, those <laughs> ring ropes are not ropes. Those are like literally steel. Wires. <laughs> and that is not a mat in the ring. That's just. Basically, maybe maybe a couple of plywood boards and then a cloth, and that's that's the mat, okay? So when you're like taking a bump off the top rope or like getting body slammed or running into the ropes, like that that stuff hurts, right? And that's what like you guys like people who are in your in, in the in the genre have to deal with like every day when if yeah. they're doing this, especially if you're doing this a like, full time on a almost like a twenty four or seven schedule, right? That's well, you know, that's just something is crazy. In the last week alone, I had three of my friends are, are out, you know, and, and uh, with injuries. Like just in the last week, I watched them. You know, one broke a wrist. One did one of those spots off the top turnbuckle where, you know, they get their legs pulled out from underneath them and they land down on the turnbuckle. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a piece of steel that you yeah. land. So if you land the wrong way, which is what happened, that person is now out indefinitely. Another person just got a back injury you know, and nobody did anything wrong in any of those things. It just happens. Right. So that's, that's when you're doing everything right, you can still get injured, but then there's just this, the plain wear and tear on your body. I mean, if you'd have talked to me yesterday morning and, and you, you know, you reached out earlier and said, I just saw your post. I'm, I'm still suffering. You can hear my cough. That's not, I don't have COVID. I don't, I don't have a cold or anything. That's just wear and tear. That's 10 straight days of me running down a ramp and going, yeah, at the top of my lungs and, you know, screaming at the villains and all of the stuff that I have to do. It's just, it just, it like tore up my, my, my esophagus or my windpipe here. And, um, my back is like, it's somebody had a meat tenderizer to it for the last 10 days, just from being picked up and dropped and, and I take my most of my own bumps too. Like a lot of the moves that I do require me to actually jump up and land on my own back. So if I give a diamond cutter, I'm jumping up and landing on my own back. If I give a drop kick, I'm drop. I'm either giving a shotgun and landing on my back, or I'm jumping and landing on my front. If I'm giving a superplex off the second turnbuckle, even I'm falling off the second turnbuckle onto my back. So I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we do besides taking the moves giving the moves is almost as hard on your body. Yeah. What are, yeah. If you don't mind me asking, like what, is, what, what are some of your signature moves and like, what's your finisher? I do a few. Um, I'm, I'm still kind of playing around with my submission moves. I, I was doing a Boston crab for a long time cause I'm an old school guy and I just loved Rick Martel. Um, and the Boston crab is just a fun move. You can see you're basically, for those who don't know, you're bending a guy backwards. Um, and uh, it's, it's absolutely legitimately a, a, an excruciatingly painful hold. So if you don't know how to apply it correctly, you can actually do a lot of damage. <coughs> um, that's one. I started using a diamond cutter a lot ago, uh, a while ago as a, a bit of an homage to DDP, um, to, to Dallas Page. Um, and besides, you know, with Randy Orton being as famous as he is, the RKO is a similar move. And uh, when I'm at fair shows and there's a lot of kids, they want to see like a cover band. They kind of want to see some of the greatest hits. So even a couple nights ago, somebody said, oh, my favorite wrestler is The Rock. And it was somebody with uh, special needs. And I said, well, 
then uh, I'm going to do my best tonight. And if I can get my opponent in the position, then I will show you um, something from the rock. So, I mean, I hit a rock bottom and did the people's elbow and it just made the little girl's day, right? Um, but my signature moves right now, I call it the mandatory compliance. I got, I, I got that out of COVID. Really works well when I'm a heel, the name of it. Uh, and I give them an airplane spin, which is an old-fashioned move where you pick a guy up over your shoulders and you just spin around in a circle, hopefully 10 times if I can hold it, <laughs> uh, put him down. And then when he's nice and wobbly, I'll go and hit the ropes and do a flying clothesline now, uh, the way that uh, Bret Hart and Macho Man used to do a flying clothesline. So it's just, it's just where I actually kick my legs out um, and, and, and do a hook with my, my right arm and, and, and clothesline the guy. So again, I'm jumping up in the air and landing on my back, right? For no, no reason <laughs> other than it looks cool. Um, so that one I call mandatory compliance. So that one I'm using as a finisher now or a signature and, um, what was once called the million dollar dream, uh, by Ted DiBiase or the Cobra clutch by, uh, um, uh, Sergeant Slaughter. It's the same move depends on who you how you how you word it so uh, i just call it the cobra clutch and and that's my my new submission slash go to sleep kind of move cool yeah mandatory compliance it's it almost sounded something related to uh something council passed uh, during right. the last meeting <laughs> yeah when i was trying to do i was think i was trying to think of something that sounded like would elicit a lot of booze if i ever said it in the ring in a promo when i'm out of town and i'm a heel which is a bad guy for those who don't know. Uh, when I play in that role, I wanted something that made me sound like a real jerk. There was a town that I was in once where, uh, the, this is where it came from. I was in a town, um, I guess I'll kind of say it out loud because poor Aylmer, the people that live in Aylmer, they're generally quite nice people for sure. But during the thick of COVID, they were really well known for this pastor who oh, was anti-mandates yeah. and everything. And I was playing the bad guy and I, at a show there, so I had this guy in a hold in the middle of the ring. I just had him in a chin lock, and I'm just grinding him up and making it look like I'm trying to rip his head off. And I looked out at the crowd, and I, and I yelled out loud, uh, show me your vaccine pa passports, Aylmer. And about half the crowd started booing, and then the other half just went silent for a minute and just kind of went, okay, that was pretty good. I got to admit, that was pretty good. <laughs> So it was kind of then when I was like, I'm going to play on this COVID stuff a little bit. And, and so my move became called, it became named mandatory. Ah, that's, that's amazing. That's <laughs> the best, the best like move names or like uh, gimmicks always, if you're based on like something real life, it's those always work out to be the best ones. <laughs> uh, I guess, uh, I guess I have a, a few more questions before we wrap it up. Uh, what's your, What's the favorite match you've had so far? And like, who would be your dream opponent at this point in time? Uh, oh boy. That's, uh, that, that's, I think the favorite match I've had, uh, boy, that, that was tough. Probably with my trainer. I had a match. This goes back like three years because we've wrestled since then and had different kinds of matches. But about three years ago, I, I wrestled my trainer, Tyson Dukes. Ah, uh, um, I don't. And uh, yeah, he, um, if for those who don't know, he, he's one of those guys that used to wrestle for WWE and everywhere else, uh, but kind of like a musician's musician, you know, who knows everything about music and the musicians really, really love him. Um, it's the same kind of thing in the wrestling world. Like he knows everything about everything, um, but uh, never made it in the big world, you know, and every time he got an opportunity, some, something about life would get, get in the way or something. So uh, a well-known wrestler amongst wrestlers for the last 20 something years and, and uh, a great trainer. And I got to wrestle him. <clears throat> like I said, a few times, but the first time we wrestled each other, it was a main event. And, uh, and that was probably my favorite match, even though I didn't know like a 10th of what I know now. Um, it's so different when I'm in the ring now, but by the, at that point, it was just so special for me that he would ask me to wrestle him. And we went on for like 25, 26 minutes. And it was like a day off. It was such an easy match to have. It was so much fun. The crowd reacted at all the right times. So that for me was probably one of my favorite matches or probably my favorite match. But I've honestly had, you know, dozens since then that I could, depending on the day, if I'm looking back on it, go, you know, maybe that was my favorite match. And for all kinds of different reasons, um, even the last 
I'd say a couple months ago, the last one we did in Sarnia here, I was involved in a match and I wasn't even wrestling that match. I had a match earlier that night, but I was involved in the main event with Cody Diener and Bupinder Gujar. And um, there was interference spot and I was in the match trying to save Cody Diener and I got double teamed and beat up by El Reverso. And my son came in and rescued me or tried to rescue me. And as I'm in the corner after getting stomped down, I looked up and my son's trying to rescue me from Reverso. A Reverso just gave him the best back elbow right in the face. And my son just took the most incredible bump onto his back. And the crowd reaction was incredible. It just, they, they, because we, now we crossed the line. Now you got like a 14 year old kid taking a bump in the ring. And you had old men like jumping up out of their seats, running towards the ring, going, oh no. Uh-uh, that didn't just happen. And so we actually had to have people ready to keep people from running in the ring. Wow. So as far as moments goes, that's probably, if you think back to what I said, you know, us healing together and going to training together and even just going to that first show together. Now my son's taking bumps in the ring as he's training with us. He's now training. Um, and uh, to have him get to do that in front of a crowd was was one of my favorite moments ever. But I got to say... I'm I'm in a cage match in a couple of weeks uh, for a title. It'll be my first title match, and uh, well, no, second title match, but it'll be my first singles title match coming up. But I'm in a cage match, and I'm just I'm like a nine year old right now. I'm I'm looking so forward to being in a cage match. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, cage matches are. Ask, ask me in a couple. Of, Ask me in a couple of weeks because I can almost guarantee I'll be able to say that was my favorite match. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, being uh, being counselor and being a pro wrestler, like mixing those two, I think I guess at some point, like there are probably constituents of yours that probably also recognize you from from your uh, wrestling career. I mean, I, I know I know you uh, mentioned you had run for other political offices before, but now that you've got like two terms under your belt. Um, you know, do you have any higher political aspirations beyond council, maybe down the road would, or would, are you very good at where you are right now? Right now I'm extremely comfortable where I'm at. And I had to learn that over the last number of years when I ran for, um, parties at a higher level, the freedom that I have now, I wouldn't have had I won and, what I love about being on council is that I truly do get to be myself in all elements of who I am. So I can say, I mean, I'm, I'm diplomatic. I think I'm known locally as, <clears throat> excuse me, the voice of reason as the sort of middle road guy. Yes, I'm a lefty, um, but I hear it from all sides and I can sometimes make decisions that people go, holy cow, I didn't realize you thought like that, but being at a council level allows you to be, you know, truly invested in, in everybody's reality at the same time. I don't have somebody whipping me, uh, uh, whipping again, for those who don't know the term, uh, is basically, uh, uh, you know, cracking the whip on you and, and pulling you in line. I don't, I don't have to be pulled in line. I'm, I'm, I'm responsible to myself and to the people that elected me and to people that I serve and, and no party affiliation, right? So that to me is the kind of freedom that I'm truly enjoying and I'm enjoying my life and my outside interests as, as, as they blossom. And as I'm learning again, who I am in sobriety, you know, 12 years plus, um, but it still allows me that freedom to kind of relive a part of my life that I sacrificed for many years because of, of addiction. Um, I can't see myself running provincially or federally anymore, but in four years, maybe I'll run for mayor. I think that's kind of the, the long answer to, uh, to that question, but just to give you some sense of why, uh, I love municipal politics. It really is uh, a sense of, of uh, individual fulfillment mm. along with the, the collaboration that you have as, as the member of the community at the community level. Well, thank you. Uh, well, Councillor White, uh, Brian, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, this was a great conversation. I'm, I'm very grateful that you've opened up to me and, all, and told me just like every about every aspect of your life and just sharing with me some very interesting uh, anecdotes about municipal politics, uh, wrestling, uh, life in general. 
So um, if people wanted to uh, look for you on social media or just reach out to you, uh, how can they find you? Uh, thank you. And thanks for the conversation, Alan. It's been a real pleasure to, to chat with you tonight. Uh, my Instagram and Twitter are the same. It's Brian White, B-R-I-A-N-W-H-I-T-E, 519. Uh, so that's both uh, my Twitter and my Instagram handle, Brian White 519 And on Facebook, my political page is uh, Brian White for Sarnia Lambton. You could also find me just on Facebook and add me there. I have uh, TikTok, but I, I just look. I don't post. <laughs> Anyways, we'll see if I find time to evolve into that. But uh, otherwise, I think it's Brian White 519 anyway as well. Thanks. Okay. Well, with that, uh, thank you very much, uh, Councillor Brian White from Sarnia. Uh, this has been another episode of the Muni Poly Matters podcast. Remember, Election Day is October 24th. Uh, there are advanced polls open uh, depending on uh, which jurisdiction you're from. So please uh, remember to check on that and uh, make sure you're on the voters list as well. Uh, I believe it's voterlookup.ca to check if you are registered to vote so you can uh, vote for Brian and whoever else is on the ballot in Sarnia and across all municipalities in Ontario. And with that, I am signing off. Thank you. Have a good evening.